the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElbenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Edward Watts on the program. Uh, Mr. Watts is a professor at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author of the new book, Mortal Republic, how Rome fell into tyranny. Many people think it's a very topical topic for today um, because the founding fathers of the United States drew um, a lot of inspiration from the setup of the Roman Re Republic, so we wanted to speak to Professor Watts about that. And Professor Watts, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. So just a, a brief question. Did I see you, um, you got your PhD from Yale? That's correct, yeah. A and have you always been at University of California, San Diego? Do you, did you start there? So I was there for 10 years, and then I, I came to California about eight years ago. Have you always been interested in the Roman Empire since you were a child? Has that always been a fascinating subject for you? Yeah, I mean, I, the thing that really drew me to Rome was this ability to, um, you know, to go and experience a, a place and a culture that has this deep history. And the thing about um, well, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, it's one of these rare societies where you have about 2,000 years of, of pretty well-documented history um, where you can trace the evolution of a society and see how it changes and um, where it's resilient and the ways in which it does not rise to challenges. And so that's always fascinated me. Exactly. I'm just going to give just uh, analogous to what you say. Um, the Roman Empire lasted, uh, the other Republic lasted something like 500 years from 509 B.C. to 27 A.D. And then um, the uh, Empire, the Rome, was sacked by barbarians in something like 410 A.D., and it continued through the Byzantine Empire, what is now Turkey. The Byzantine Empire lasted until, I think, 1453. So if we could just go back to um, the Roman Republic, just briefly, in, in yeah. very simplistic terms, could you just discuss how the government was formed? I know there were, uh, there were two um, people who uh, helped to lead the government. There was the Roman Senate. There was a plebeium assembly. Um, could you just give me a basic overview of how the, how the government was run? talking about the Roman Republic, we're talking about um, a, an institution of government or a system of government that evolves over time. But in its sort of final stage, what you have is a representative democracy um, in which the basic principle is that the, the will and the ideas of the people will be channeled through representatives that the people choose, who will then propose ideas that the people will vote on in a representative fashion. And the um, major places in which these policies arise, the, the sort of classical and, and latest stage of the republic, uh, there's an assembly that is made up of people who are um, not of aristocratic birth. Uh, and this is an assembly that, that as you, as you uh, mentioned, is the Plebeian Assembly. Um, and there are representatives who are chosen to um, forward laws and, and encourage and organize votes on those laws called tribunes of the plebs. Um, the way the Republic is supposed to work is that there are also magistrates who are charged with implementing laws. 
in the U.S. context, we would see as the executive branch. And when those magistrates leave office, they become eligible for membership in the Senate. And so the Senate served as this consultative body made up of former magistrates who have experience and can lend, ideally can lend wisdom to um, policy disputes or discussions. Uh, and so what you have in the, the sort of classical phase of the Roman Republic is the plebeian assembly um, and another popular assembly that is similar, uh, in which laws are proposed and voted upon. The Senate that serves as this kind of consultative assembly made up of people who are former executives. And then a kind of executive branch that's made up of elected magistrates who are charged with implementing laws and implementing policies. And there are two um, other two leaders, too, they pick at the same time that sort of check each other and serve one year? This is, yes, this is the genius of the Roman Republic. Um, there is a, a basic principle that everybody involved with the Republic agreed on. That is that uh, unless it's an absolute emergency and there's no other way to do it, every magistrate needs to have a pair. You know, it needs to be sort of a twinned magistrate that is equally powerful. Um, and so each of those magistrates basically has to come to some sort of agreement for anything to happen. Uh, and the principle that underlies this entire structure is the idea among Romans that it's better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing. And it's better to do something that is broadly supported than to do something that has a very narrow base of support. And so magistrates need to cooperate. Uh, and if they can't cooperate, it's better to do nothing than to create factions and division um, by one magistrate pursuing something that isn't broadly supported by the population. Okay, and as and as um, it's fair that the founding fathers of the United States looked at the Roman Republic and they wanted to take their checks and balances, that helped set up the legislature, the judiciary, and the executive that we have in this country. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely, um, it's clear when you look at uh, you know, when you look at some of the writings of the Founding Fathers, it's clear that they knew about this. They're reading Roman political theorists, and they very clearly understand that in a, a place as large and complicated and full of really diverse interests um, as the United States was when it was founded, you need to have a system of government that has checks and balances and also promotes compromise and consensus building. And they looked at the Roman Republic as uh, you know, the ultimate example of a system that both checks um, the power of an executive and also facilitates compromises and discussions between really diverse um, economic, social, and political perspectives. Okay, now I just want to fast forward a little bit. Um, the success of the Republic is well known that they win military victories, they expand, most notably um, against Carthage, the Punic War, they defeat, uh, they seize territory, they grow. Um, a lot of wealth comes in, and eventually the seeds of the destruction uh, of the Roman Republic are there. And th there are several, uh, there are a number of factors I think which your book discusses as to why the Roman Republic fell. Um, I guess if I could just start with 133 BC, the, the wealth was uh, tremendous, and uh, there was a, an effort to, re to have a land reform. And there was a person named Tiberius. Is that correct? He and his brother were trying to do some land reform, which you said was rather modest. I think it only would have affected something like 26,000 people, but it would have tried to take some of the wealth of Rome and redistribute it. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's correct. I think that the um, the situation in the second century BC is something we're only really in the last ten years beginning to really truly appreciate. Um, and what you see in Rome in the middle part of the second century is this tremendous accumulation of wealth around people who understand how a financial system works. You know, Rome has developed in the second century a pretty sophisticated financial system that works more or less in the way that, say, um, a bond market works. Uh, and people understand this and understand how to capitalize on it, become very wealthy very quickly. And the Roman state just doesn't really know how to deal with this kind of economic inequality. Uh, and it really struggles with it because you can't easily find a consensus and then compromise position that addresses it. And what you get in 133 with Tiberius Gracchus is a figure who understands the frustration that this economic inequality is producing and also understands what he can do to personally capitalize upon it. And so the reform that he proposes is relatively modest, but unlike what most Roman politicians traditionally tended to do, Tiberius Gracchus is not going to be patient to wait for a consensus to build around this reform. Instead, he wants to own the reform. And so he pushes this land reform that, as he mentioned, doesn't, in the end, even if implemented, would not affect very many people. Um, he pushes it aggressively because he wants this symbolically to be his reform. And the system is not ready to accommodate that, um, and he pushes it to a breaking point that results in the first act of political violence in Rome in over 400 years. Right. He, he's killed. Um, 300 of his supporters have killed. The Senate, I mean, doesn't he try to first bypass the Senate to get the reforms done, and then the Senate eventually kills him? Is that roughly what happens? That's basically what happens. Yeah. What, what he realizes is that there is, no, there is no consensus around the idea that he's pushing. And uh, he's going to either have to let the idea drop or he's going to have to push it in an unconventional way. And what he starts doing is sidelining the Senate, which constitutionally was allowed, um, but it wasn't something that you, were, that you normally did. Um, and the Senate says that it believes this is not a good idea. He says, I don't care. Uh, and the Senate then works with one of his co-magistrates to block the, the measure, and Tiberius Rockets has the magistrate deposed. Um, which, again, is not something that is constitutionally prohibited, but it just wasn't done. And ultimately, the Senate realizes that Tiberius is, is a threat to the uh, stability of the state and orders well, and, and works to arrange his assassination. But the, the senatorial reaction um, is so profound and so destructive uh, that Romans kind of take a step back and realize that this is, this is really not the way the Republic is supposed to work. And people are horrified. Um, the political conflict has, has developed in such a way that it has led to violence and murder. Right. So in a way that you could say that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon when he crossed the river to go into Rome, the Rubicon has sort of been crossed now in terms of violence. So now we have violence and po politics, which hadn't existed before. Un we have extreme wealth disparities. And an another reason you mentioned about the re decline of the re republic is the military reforms, the Marion reforms, and uh, basically how the military becomes loyal to individuals rather than to the state, because they need this big standing army that sort of exists for plunder. Could you discuss that, that as well, please? Sure. I think when you have this economic inequality, um, what you tend to get is, um, as, say, generations pass, you know, by the end of the first century, you're now sort of two generations into this extremely unequal society. And uh, what Marius, the politician Gaius Marius, realizes is 
there's an opportunity to capitalize on that as well. You know, there are people who are looking for something that can get them wealth relatively quickly. Um, the Roman military is a very successful enterprise, and uh, the way ancient warfare worked is if you're a victorious military, you basically can plunder your enemies. Uh, and so what Marius does is he realizes there's a very fertile ground to recruit poor people or relatively poor people who are interested in um, getting that big payoff that comes from military service. The problem, though, is that Marius uh, recruits people who then are more loyal to Marius and the success that Marius brings than they are to the, the service of the state. And it had never before happened that Roman armies were more loyal to their commander than they were to the state. Um, and what ultimately you get is, of course, predictable. Um, about 20 years after the Marian reforms, you have a commander named Sulla who marches his army against the city of Rome because he, he forced his army to choose and to, to speak to their loyalty to their commander um, and do it in opposition to the establishment of the Republic. Uh, and so the the end point is, of course, civil war. Yes, I hadn't realized before I read your book that Sulla had essentially did what Caesar did just before the Caesar was the second person to essentially march on Rome uh, with an army loyal to him. But just going back to another another point of your book, you mentioned like when the Republic was strong, there was an invasion from, what, is it Pyrrhic from, from northern Greece? They invade, and he tries to basically bribe a member of the Senate, and, and the Senate would not be bribed because at that point they still have loyalty to the Republic, and that eventually shifts along with the army, along with people's values. It, but at one point the Republic could withstand because it was the idea of the state, and that just sort of gradually phased into the idea of sort of me. Is, is that roughly correct? Yeah. No, I think the, the invasion of, uh, of Pyrrhus, who's a, basically a descendant and an heir of Alexander the Great, um, is a great sort of moment of testing for the Republic. Because Pyrrhus, um, you know, the famous phrase of a Pyrrhic victory uh, relates to the fact that Pyrrhus won two battles against Rome, but the losses were so significant that Pyrrhus didn't want to continue to fight. And so Pyrrhus was basically just looking for a way out uh, and thought that he could find a way out by bribing a relatively poor but influential Roman politician. And in the end, um, what Pyrrhus is told and what Pyrrhus learns is that the social structure of the Republic and the reward system that the Republic creates was so strong um, that people were not susceptible to bribery. And this shocked Pyrrhus because everyone else he had ever interacted with, you know, you could be they would be defeated, but if you couldn't defeat them, you could at least kind of grease the wheels and create some sort of a, a settlement um, that allowed you to stay safe. And with Rome, he realized he couldn't because the Republic dominated all of the social currency that was valuable to Romans. And economic currency just did not trump the social currency that um, the Republic controlled. Exactly. Okay, so now we have the, going back to the problems of the Republic, we have um, Tiberius reforms that he proposed and his, the political violence of his being killed basically the corruption of the army you mentioned the dictatorship of Sulla he marches on Rome I think that's 60 BC and essentially becomes a tyrant he he takes a lot of people's lands he kills people there's disorder and that I think creates basically a groundswell for someone like Caesar to come in later and Ran Augustus who, who can establish some sort of order because now there's chaos right you can't be certain of having your land and there's just a need for someone to, I guess, have some order and, and some level-headedness to what's occurring. Is that sort of the chaos of Sulla? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Sulla marches actually in the 80s. And um, what Sulla does is he not only kills large numbers of people, but he does it in a horrific way. So when 
Silla finally and completely takes over the Republic, um, he calls a meeting of the Senate and brings out 10,000 prisoners of war and has the meeting of the Senate in a room with an open window, and he makes the senators listen to the torture and execution of these thousands of prisoners of war as a way to show the Senate that what he's telling them um, about how the Republic will now work is going to be enforced with this kind of brutal um, and tyrannical use of violence against Roman citizens. And one of the things that is, is, I think, difficult for us to understand is the Republic fundamentally did not take the lives of Roman citizens until that point. Um, it didn't have a mechanism to do it, and if a Roman citizen did something very serious, that Roman citizen would be exiled. They would not be executed. And so when Sola starts implementing these executions, it's terrifying to people. Um, and as you move through the first century BC and ultimately into the civil war that leads to the victory of Augustus and the end of the Republic, what you see is these incidents of terrorism, um, state-sponsored terrorism, become more and more serious until in that civil war um, that ultimately leads to Augustus' victory, it's, it's almost routine. You know, the level of violence um, becomes basically so pervasive uh, that people are willing to turn to Augustus just as a simple um, guarantee of security of their property and their lives. Uh, and the Republic had maintained a monopoly on that security and that use of force to secure property and lives for almost 500 years. Um, and so people basically are induced to turn to Augustus and away from the Republican institutions because they don't trust the Republic to do those things anymore. Right. So so after the, the Sulla dictatorship, I just want to now turn to Caesar. Um, he rules with two other people. There's the, the triumvirate. Caesar basically takes power, um, and he marches according to the famous cross in the Rubicon, brings his army into Rome. Um, could you just talk about Caesar's rule and then being killed by um, Brutus and how that affected the Republic, too? Yeah, I, the interesting thing about Caesar is Caesar was a victim of Sulla's dictatorship. I mean, Caesar was, he had his property confiscated, members of his family were executed, and uh, so Caesar was deeply scarred by this, and Caesar's whole way of operating, even up to beginning his civil war and even concluding his civil war against the general Pompey, Caesar's idea throughout this was, I do not want to do what Sulla did. And so Caesar will execute people if they betray him twice. Um, but someone like Brutus, the assassin of Caesar, fought against Caesar in the Civil War, and Caesar pardoned him because Caesar did not want to be like Sulla. And so Caesar's fighting of the Civil War was something that in, in some ways was um, remarkably civilized. He did not want to execute people, and if people appealed for his mercy, he would grant that mercy. Um, but what one begins to see after Caesar's victory in that Civil War is Caesar is trying to figure out how he can continue to guarantee the security of the Republic and the security of the persons and property of its citizens. And he doesn't come up with any kind of solution that will work except for taking power as basically a perpetual dictator. And this is what incites Brutus and Cassius and a number of the people that Caesar has pardoned uh, to act against him. Because the principle of liberty to those assassins was even more important than the security of lives and property that Caesar was bringing about. 
And so when Caesar's assassinated, uh, what the assassins think they're doing is restoring liberty to the Roman state. Right. Yeah. Um, but for Ro- for Romans, they don't actually see this liberty in the same way that Brutus and Cassius did. Right. Um, for Romans, liberty is the freedom to live, not the freedom to speak freely. Exactly. I think I heard you say on, on reading a speech or something you did on another program that Brutus was not um, welcomed with open arms by the citizen after killing Caesar, and he was not didn't have the popularity he expected. Is that fair to say? It's remarkable because Brutus had prepared. Brutus is an incredible orator, and he prepared this speech that is a you know a speech uplifting um, the ideals of Roman liberty. And Caesar is assassinated in a Senate meeting. Um, so the Senate is all there. And what Brutus expected is Caesar would die and everybody would basically clap and listen to Brutus's speech and Rome would move forward as a free state. And instead what happens is everybody panics. The entire city panics. And Brutus doesn't get to deliver his speech um, because nobody stays in the Senate house. Everybody runs away because they're now afraid that there won't be any security in the Roman state. Um, and Brutus had completely not understood that that was what Caesar was bringing, and that that mattered to people more than political liberty. Exactly. And now I just want to turn to Augustus, the first emperor who was smart enough, I think, not to call himself emperor because he didn't want to have a target on his back as being the emperor, but he essentially was the first emperor. And if you, uh, you may have seen Justice, former Supreme Court Justice David Souter said, this is what he worries most about with the United States because that people turn to someone like Augustus, and Augustus says, I will solve the problem. And so in the case of Rome, we have... Uh, you know, we have two people attacking it. We have Sulla. We have Caesar. We have the chaos. We have land taking away. We have people feeling insecure, and Augustus comes along and brings order. So thus, just like with the death of Caesar and Brutus not being um, idolized for it, Augustus comes, and people um, w- welcome it. They sort of essentially give up their power to Augustus, and indeed, in some cases, they even want to have more power, I remember. And, and uh, Benjamin Franklin said, the United States has a republic if you can keep it. Well, they didn't want to keep it, right? The Romans did not want to keep the Republic at that point. They wanted to give their power to Augustus. Is that fair? That's correct. Uh, and I think the thing that is um, the, the thing that is most remarkable about Augustus is Augustus, in a sense, has two phases of his public life. The first phase, and it lasts for a very long time, starts when he's 19 years old and lasts until he's in his mid-30s. And this is Augustus as the civil warrior, and he is the most brutal civil warrior that Rome has ever seen. Um, the, the level of violence, destruction, and seizure of property that Augustus brings about is something that Romans couldn't have even imagined at the beginning of that war. Um, but the thing that's remarkable about Augustus is he's one of the very rare people in history that can be that brutal at one phase in his career and then transition and create a peaceful and successful and stable political order afterwards. Um, and Rome was incredibly lucky to have that second phase of Augustus. Uh, because what Augustus understood was that the brutality was something that had created um, enough damage and destruction that people were willing to turn to someone who could give them security. And Augustus was capable enough as a governing figure that in the second phase of his career, he was able to bring about that security. Um, and that is the, the fundamental reason that Rome continues as an empire and, and it functions effectively as an empire. You know, because Augustus was able to make that transition from this incredible violence and destruction and murder of his early career um, into a figure who both builds and then superintends a relatively stable and successful governing order afterwards. Um, and so he's an incredibly complicated figure 
but if Rome didn't have that incredibly complicated figure, it's quite likely that the entire um, enterprise would have fallen apart. Right. This is approximately twenty. Is it approximately twenty-seven BC when Augustus takes over? Yeah, once he uh, secures a settlement that sets the basic foundations and principles under which the empire is going to proceed, that's in 27 BC. Right. Um, and he modifies this again uh, a few times. But Augustus reigns as emperor after 27 BC for 41 years. And the average lifespan of a Roman who made it out of infancy was about 50 years. So by the time Augustus died, there are very few people who remember anything other than the imperial order that Augustus set up. Very, very few people who had participated in anything politically that wasn't that empire. Just a, just a few more questions. If, if you're an average Roman person, are you, do you think you were better off under the Republic, at least at the early stage of the Republic, or were you better off under the imperial, you know, the emperors? Do you have any idea how the average person fared based on either of those systems? So there's a, a really interesting um, discussion of this in some of our Roman sources, because what they basically say is, you know, the, the Republic is quite good for a certain segment of wealthy Romans who participate fully in the stuff that it brings. Um, but the empire is, you know, once the empire is built out and secured under Augustus, the empire is bigger than the United States. And most of the people living in that empire uh, they don't live in Italy. You know, Italy is maybe 10% of the population of that empire. And under the emperors, the rest of that population does far better than they did under the Republic. You know, the Republic basically worked as a 19th century colonialist regime, extracting resources and wealth from these provinces um, and benefiting basically wealthy and, and upper middle class um, Romans in Italy. And under the empire, the um, people who are benefiting from the political structure becomes much greater until uh, in the year 212 AD, everybody is a Roman citizen, and this idea of extraction to benefit Italians is completely um, overturned. And so I think that the answer would be if you, if you are a wealthy or relatively wealthy Italian, you're doing far better under the Republic when the Republic is stable. Okay. After 80, probably not. Now, uh, but if you live anywhere else, the empire is better for you. Your, your book is very topical because a number of people have tried to bring comparisons to the United States today as to where the late Roman Republic was. Um, if you look at the, um, now it's very hard, of course, to make exact comparisons. But if you look at the United States, we're about halfway through the Roman Republic's time. Some people say Trump is like a Tiberius, who the guy who started political violence, violence in Rome in uh, 133 BC when he was well, he didn't start it, but he he uh, some say caused it, and then was killed due to the violence um, that was unleashed. Do you see any, any parallels? I mean, um, you talk. I think you all said uh, that the people have to want to have a republic, have to want to have it survive. That is not just a natural course. And and apathy, for example, I think you said, it's, uh, I heard you say, can kill a republic. And the U.S. has, what, 50%, less than 50% of the people voting. There is a lot of apathy. There's a lot of gridlock. Like, I think you mentioned Cato in your book, uh, blocking things in the Senate. And um, there's gridlock, of course, in Washington. So I'll just leave it, uh, let you answer better than I can. But do you see any parallels between the United States today and the Roman Republic? And should we be concerned? Yeah, I think that the biggest the biggest parallel and the biggest challenge I think the United States faces is exactly what you just mentioned, this complacency that uh, we are a republic, we've been a republic for a very long time, and because of that, you know, our republic therefore must be strong, and it, it is resilient because it survived all sorts of challenges, even up to the Civil War, um, and therefore, you know, we are in a way 
kind of better position to survive the challenges to the Republican system than, say, a younger republic like Turkey or Venezuela, you know, places that, that have not been as um, durable. And what Rome shows is that complacency is actually one of the biggest dangers that a republic faces, um, because people then become a lot more tolerant of aberrant behavior, and they become a lot more tolerant of actions um, and policies that break with the principle that a republic is supposed to uphold. Um, and, and I think the basic principle that everyone has to understand is a functional republic works on basically two ideas. I mean, the first is that anyone who is elected as a representative is supposed to try to represent the opinions of the largest possible group that they can. Um, not 50% of the vote, not even 60% of the vote, but you want to get as close to 100% of the vote as you can. And we have moved away from that idea. But the other thing is the republic is based on consensus and compromise. It's supposed to move slowly because in that process of moving slowly, you build better policies that more people believe in. And so there are a lot of things built into that to slow decision-making down so that the policy is better. But the complacency that I think we're, we're facing is people are now using these policies and these, these procedures that are supposed to generate consensus and just shutting things down. And that takes one of the great virtues of the republic and turns it into a horrible vice um, that people won't tolerate. And we're really playing with fire. This is what um, we're going to continue to do in the United States. So just to summarize, if someone only represents a narrow minority, like I think what Trump's base, what, 35 percent, something like that, if they, um, I guess, demonize other people and make it seem, you know, out of the ordinary type of tax, um, and we have a lot of combined with a lot of apathy and, com and complacency, those are things which could potentially help to lead to the decline of our republic. Is that is that fair? Yeah, and I think this is what you see again and again in the last century of the Roman Republic, where people shut this process down. They misuse the, the tools that are supposed to slow decision-making down to build better policies, and people get frustrated because problems are not getting solved. And they are willing to turn to people who will do unconventional or unconstitutional things simply because they are frustrated that problems are not getting solved. Um, and this happens with Marius. This happens with Tiberius Gracchus. This happens with Caesar. And ultimately, you know, most significantly, it happens with Augustus. Um, and that is the real danger in a republic, where if people don't believe that you are honestly trying to make better policy, they see that you're just obstructing things, they are not invested in those procedures, and they're not invested in the Republican system in the same way, and they don't trust it in the same way um, that they would if it was functional. The other thing we didn't talk about too much is, is tremendous wealth disparity that exists in the United States today and existed in the Roman Republic. I think I read that something like the Forbes 400 is something like half the income of the United States. 400 people have income equal to about 160 million people. Was that roughly what it was in the Roman Republic? Was it was the wealth disparity the same as what we have in the United States now? Was it worse? Was it was it better? Do you have any idea how how it would compare if we compared it to the United States? Um, I think it's it's hard to measure uh, in the same way because we don't have things like the Forbes 400. But what we can see is uh, the disparity is tremendous. And what you begin to see, um, people begin to get troubled by this when they start to see examples of what they uh, determine to be like ludicrous amounts of wealth. Um, and that promotes a, a sense of 
well, it's a sense of frustration that some people just are doing better than other people, and it doesn't make sense why. Um, and so I don't know that the level of inequality is, you know, quite, I mean, I don't know that we can really assess the level of inequality in Rome, but the perception is certainly very similar. You know, this idea that there are people who are just ludicrously wealthy while other people are struggling. And the society has not found a way um, to address that and to make the people struggling feel like the people who are ludicrously wealthy care at all about their struggles. Um, and that certainly was the situation in Rome in the second century and into the first century. Well, um, excellent. That's very interesting. Um, well, I think I covered most of my questions and pretty much out of time. So, Professor uh, Edward Watts, your book is um, Moral Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. Thank you so much for your time today. It was very interesting discussion and talking to you about this very topical um, situation and um, uh, your book. Oh, thank you so much. This was really great. Thank you. Have a good day and good luck. Bye-bye. You too.